Coming up on this week's show, a famous Nintendo character is found in a classic Sega game. Bioshock gets demade. And we chat to Stephen Leary from Terrible Fire about turbocharging your old systems. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, you should know by now, they give you the best retro gaming books. And one that you need to check out is the games that weren't celebrating some of the best video games that never made it out onto the market. Covering the Atari 2600 right up until the PlayStation 4, arcade games, home computer consoles, handhelds, and lots more as well. This has been years in the making and is their biggest and most ambitious project to date. Check it out and their full range of retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 295, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show, or should it be a uh, slightly chilly welcome to this week's show, but then it is our first episode of October, amazingly. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, my missus has been coming home every day. She's like, on a lunch break, oh, I just went to, uh, went to Wilco's or went to BMI. I've come home with some more Halloween decorations. I don't know what she thinks we're doing on Halloween this year. <laughs> apparently you're having a big Halloween party for your... It's, it, apparently so. In your new studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually thinking what I might do on Halloween this year, because I've got a new home studio that's kind of nearly finished now. thinking I might maybe stream on our Twitch a few um, classic Halloween video games. Oh, yeah. See, Ravi, you, Ravi, you, give me the you boys love Halloween. I just spend it yeah. like trying to hide from trick-or-treaters. <laughs> 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 it's just a night in where I eat some cheap chocolate and hide. <laughs> You know, I was looking actually the other day for, you know, weird things came up on my, on my Facebook page. It's kind of this projector that you put in your window that puts like, you know, pumpkins and ghosts and all that kind of thing up there. This guy said for the first time in 10 years, he didn't get any trick-or-treaters last year because everyone's too scared to knock on his door. So um, <laughs> that's maybe that's Social you distancing, do, right? you ch- <laughs> chuck the sweets at them. Um, <laughs> you were growing some pumpkins, weren't you, Dan? Are, are you yeah, going to be that- using them this year? Uh, no, I think I grew a weed instead of a pumpkin. Um, it didn't come out quite as expected, but I'm looking forward to sitting in. We've got a bit of a tradition. I mean, Joe's the same. You normally get your Resident Evil games on. I tend to play Alone in the Dark. That's one of my Halloween traditions that I play that game. Um, seventh Guest, I was playing last year on the CDI as well. It's a good season, you know, when it's getting cold and the nights are getting longer just to sit in and play a few horror games. It is a good excuse to do it, I think. Yeah, man. I, I I always do a post on our Instagram as well, which I need to do more of. But I always do a post like, you know, these are the games we're playing. And every time, yeah. like me and me and Dan have always got something like, yeah, we're playing Resident Evil, playing Alone in the Dark. And Ravi's always like, oh, Jesus, um, something scary. Civilization <laughs> free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're into that season now. And um, obviously, you know, when we're indoors a lot more at this time of year, because it's cold here in the UK, um, we generally spend more time tinkering with our machines. And uh, Ravi and I in particular, we're, we're quite big fans of upgrading our classic computers and, you know, a few consoles as well. And today we're going to be joined by someone who's um, really an enabler for all that, isn't he? This is Stephen Leary from the Terrible Fire Project. Now, you and I, Ravi, have been big fans of Terrible Fire's cards, for the Amiga in particular, over the last like half a decade or so now. Don't know about you, I think I've got about four of his cards in different machines. Yeah, I've 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 got a couple as well, and you know what? Um, they're not as bad as the name suggests. You know, you're not going to set fire to your system. I always thought that wasn't the best branding for something that you're going to put <laughs> in a thirty year old computer. But um, yeah, they they are fire. They're wicked. Um, yeah, see, down with the kids. They're, they're basically um, open source hardware accelerators. And uh, the really cool thing about Terrible Fire is uh, there is just one man 
doing it on his own. He's he's got help from some wonderful people like Super Duper who also help him out. But um, he he creates these cards for kind of fun and uh, just to like get more out of your system. And they've really helped a lot of people, and a lot of people are using them in their systems. But he kind of mainly focuses on Amiga, but he's also known for working on other systems. So we're going to be chatting to Stephen about um, Amiga, of course, because, you know, we love that system. But also the MSX. He's, he's creating a full MSX clone. He's doing stuff that's now benefiting the Atari as well, which is absolutely awesome. And and a new thing that he's doing as well is, you know, arcade machines. A lot of the mm. chips aren't in production anymore. So he's actually making little replacement chips that you can slot into your arcade machine and kind of keep these old boards going. Uh, He's all about kind of pushing stuff uh, far past their limits and uh, doing it with hardware. It's, It's pretty amazing, to be honest. And I think you made a really good point there that what he does, all of these projects he makes are open source. So there are people who actually make these cards and they sell them for, you know, usually not not really much profit. So they're very affordable because, you know, speaking as, you know, you and I have been Amiga fans, it did get to a stage where even a, a very simple upgrade for the Amiga, the prices were ridiculous, weren't they, for like second-hand hardware. So it's something that was ex- especially needed. And the fact that he came out with these cards, I mean, I've got um, a couple in the CD32 and you know, the one I've got next to me here, it's got the, um, the Terrible Fire card in the back of my CD32, plugs in the back. I've got a little compact flash card in there. Um, with an SD card adapter, actually. So I've got pretty much every Amiga game on there. It's got some extra memory on board as well, so it can play the more demanding games. It's got an O30 to speed up the console. So really, I use that as my ultimate Amiga gaming setup. You know, I've got pretty much every Amiga game installed. You turn the machine on, a menu loads up, select them from the joypad, and you're good to go, which makes something like the CD32 infinitely better than it was originally well there was a time when people were buying amiga cards and they were accelerators and you're right they were expensive but also they were old and like there's other people doing cards out there as well but steven's ones were really cheap and accessible and like the fact that you can actually get new hardware uh uh, really interested us and like it's opened up the market you know um it's opened up the market to lower range cheaper Amiga accelerators and if you just want a a little bit of extra kick to be able to just like you said play all of the games kind of WHD load games and uh, get them going they're absolutely ideal and there's a lot of love out there for terrible fire stuff and uh, he's always creating something crazy like you know you you always see a prototype and you're like what the hell How, how does that work or you know what's coming next so we're going to be talking to Stephen all about his inventions and uh, ideas because it's it's just amazing one single person doing this and uh, this is a kind of thing that we we couldn't have dreamed of years ago in the Amiga community yeah so he's a real credit to the retro community and he's got an interesting YouTube channel as well that you know a lot of it goes way way over my head but I really enjoy watching it so Stephen Leary from Terrible Fire is going to be our special guest on the show in around 25 minutes from now now let's jump straight into the stories this week this was really cool. Now, I'm a big fan of the game Bioshock. I don't know if you guys have played that. I mean, I had it on the original Xbox, and it was. That was kind of around the time I got back into video games in a big way, you know, around 2007, 2008. And I remember sinking so much time into that game and it having one of the best stories and, you know, really immersive atmosphere. Again, will be a good game to play on Halloween, actually. But maybe you want to play it with a bit of a spin. Someone's actually recreated Bioshock as a uh, kind of a 16-bit side-scrolling game. 
Yeah, so I I've never actually played Bioshock. I'm what? I'm from I know oh, I'm Joe. familiar with them. I am familiar with them. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ravi might know, but aren't half the team of like time splitters like involved with this as well in Bioshock? Uh, I, I'm not sure about that, but I I think Bioshock when it came out, it, it was so stylish and it had that kind yeah. of jetsons future yeah retro kind of vibe um 1950s it's very steampunk in it you, you know i don't think the fallout series would have kind of existed without uh bioshock having that foundation of uh uh you know the Ooh. new modern fallout stuff oh, i thought i was gonna say i was a bit like oh well fallout came a lot before bioshock. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so you could save that <laughs> um, yeah but yeah this comes from a youtuber who you know, the article's saying everywhere, and, you know, I think even his video says, like, I think his video has just put it as a 2D version. I think the- he retitled it originally, says, I attempt to create Bioshock for the Super Nintendo. That, that's kind of the original title. It's in the description on this video. Um, yeah. It's a guy called Thomas uh, Brush, isn't it? And, you know, and they're saying, oh, it's in the vein of a Mega Drive slash SNES game, which I get. But this game looks way too advanced for the SNES or the Mega Drive. It looks a little bit more like like Little Nightmares you compared yeah. to, didn't you, Dan? You know, a lot of these kind of like, you know, put 2.5D kind of games. Um, but, yeah, but they yeah, look very high resolution still, don't they? Yeah, really high resolution, really, really nice smooth graphics. But yeah, this looks really cool. He's made it into a, a 16-bit-esque um, 2D action platform of running gun, hasn't he? And, you know, mm. from what I understand... You know, like I say, I'm not, I'm not a big Bioshock guy. I don't know much about them. Maybe I will, I'll play them this Halloween. Maybe it's a, you know, like you say, a good game to play. It looks like he's really captured the Bioshock kind of like vein of it. You know, the element of it. You know, I know the game's set in like an underwater city and everything, and it looks like he's nailed that. You know, with the gameplay and how it looks and the style of the game. Well, it was this kind of fantasy world uh, called the Rapture. Yeah, and uh, like you've had post-apocalyptic stuff before, but um, this had a kind of a, a grand feel to it, and it was like a kind of Atlantis-like kind of undiscovered Jetsons world, and uh, he's he's really really done well with it, especially the underground sections, because when you start off with Bioshock, you uh, going underwater in it in a kind of submarine, and then uh, mm-hmm. you you enter this world. Um, it's it's a nice platformer. It's definitely not Snaz. This is much more advanced than that, but uh, it's he's got a, a shooting style with the mouse, like you said, and um, that's a lot like abuse. Do you remember abuse? I always say yeah, everything's yeah. like abuse, don't I? But I know what you mean. This kind of matches that kind of dark atmosphere of Bioshock. I think he's captured that quite well with like the color palette he's used and the pacing and everything. Yeah, the curves kind of and kind of, the kind of yeah. gold and uh, uh, that kind of look. It does remind me, though, of something like, um, yeah, these kind of modern, what are meant to be retro games, you know, they say retro-inspired on modern consoles that, you know, always look a little bit too smooth. You knew that something like the Super Nintendo couldn't have run this. But some people are saying in the comments on the YouTube video, you know, you've got a good starting point for it. And it's great now. to You could play it on the Switch and it'd be really home on that. But it would be cool if maybe you could downgrade it a bit more into like pixel-style graphics, which probably would be doable, I think, with the, the foundation that he's got there. Yeah, totally. And... uh I, I think it needs a bit more plants and uh, it does look mm. industrial, but we've only seen a few like little levels that we've got there on it. You know, uh, it's it's another good use of the Unreal Engine. We keep seeing amazing things being made and, and made by individuals as well. It's it's, it's mm. not big teams and stuff. This is really awesome. Yeah, so it's um, nothing you can download at the moment, but you know that it is available if you want to check out that video. And, so, and, uh, uh, 
if we get Brian Fargo on the podcast, I hope he doesn't kill me about what I said about um, <laughs> Fallout. <laughs> he will. He will now. You've drawn attention. <laughs> he was going to come on till that. Is that right? Forget those guys. Forget that now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, if you want to check that out, I'll link it up in our show notes. What about this and the MSX that we were talking about just then? And we will be going more in depth with Stephen Leary about the MSX, because like you mentioned, he's actually doing a clone of that machine. We've kind of covered it. We actually did a couple of episodes about the MSX before. And actually, weirdly, I got my hands on one and had a proper play with an MSX for really the first time. I mean, I've, I've just kind of played them for a couple of minutes before, but I sat down for about an hour with one at the weekend. And this is a new game that not only can you play online, but also they're taking pre-orders for a full msx version of it and this is a fantasy game called the fall of prometheus yeah so from what i understand this game kind of started development in like 2017 uh you know Mm. as a fan-made game for the msx and it looks really like i mean i'm not too familiar with the msx i know it's an 8-bit game but it captures what it's going for really well it looks like kind of like a greek mythology puzzle game um, which we, got, we wondered if it was an RPG because it looks a bit like an RPG. It does it? look a bit like kind of like a Zelda clone, doesn't it? But apparently, it's mm. a thirty-screen puzzle game. You know, each screen is a different puzzle. Where by the looks of things, I want to say you like push blocks and stuff like that to kind of figure yeah. out how to get through the level. And it does look that there is enemies knocking about and stuff in there as well. And it's divided into three different worlds. Um, you've got the, the the Tantos world, the Garden of Hesperides, and then also a secret mythological theme world as well um and like you say this is currently playable online for free yeah and in your browser and in, in your browser which is really really cool and then if you really like the game you can buy it on a physical you know big box edition for the msx for 26 euros which mm. i think is pretty reasonable because a lot of these games you know which are usually quite reasonable as well come out at like 50 euros 50 quid you know so i think 26 is pretty reasonable if you really like the game but it's awesome that it's there for you just to play in browser as well well, if you want to check out what it looks like on the MSX, the version that you play online actually launches in an MSX emulator. Oh, wow, cool. So you can, it's, it's actually the actual game that, that actually you play fits on in with the theme of today's guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is amazing because I, I love these puzzle games back in the day. There's one that I used to play on my Commodore 64 called Fire Ant that I tried to revisit about two years ago and got completely lost. I don't think I could get off the second screen. But I remember being like, you know, a little kid about seven, eight years old, sitting there with my mum, and we'd spend so much time on it. And a lot of the time you just randomly figure things out. You know, you had no internet. I didn't even have magazines with it in. You just spent a lot of time on it and actually figured out how the game worked and these kind of hidden little secrets. So there is something very satisfying about when you finally do solve a puzzle in a game like this, particularly if it's anything like that. I mean, I haven't actually sat down and played the uh, the online version yet, but I probably will actually after we finish recording today. But if it's anything like that and it's got those kind of, you know, the, the challenges that are kind of up to the standard of other 8-bit games, you know, mm. that require a bit of thought, there is something very rewarding when you do finally figure stuff out and get past the screen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, you've got enemies in here like uh, Cyclops, um, Gargoyles as well. So, yeah, very mythical-looking game. I love the colour palette of it as well. Because the MSX, like I said, I've not got a lot of experience with it, but very vibrant colours. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, like you said, the theme of, theme of it is none of us have much experience with it. You know, it's a very Japanese, you know, system, yeah. wasn't it? But it's cool when things like this come along for people like us who don't have that experience with it to kind of experience a little bit. Like, I know it's a homebrew game. It's not an actual original msx game but it gives us you know a little bit it, it gives us an, an experience to actually play you know a game that would have run on it do you know what i mean 
Yeah, and I think today, you know, we talk about it on the Amstrad scene as well, the fact that people have had these systems and they know so much about them now that they can do stuff that you couldn't have done 35 years ago on that machine because people didn't know all the tricks of the hardware and now they've really got it nailed. So I think a lot of the time we're seeing some of the best games ever come out on on these old systems now. So uh, definitely worth backing, you know. Homebrew stuff like that as well. The fact that you can buy a box version of it, you support these projects and there'll be more of them out there. So definitely worth having a look at that. I will link that up if you want to check it out in our show notes. Now, this is something that um, particularly at this time isn't something I thought I would have seen. This is something else that's come out of the um, Project Deluge that we were talking about from Hidden Palace last week. We talked about those... um, prototype Dreamcast games, like 135 of them that were discovered. This uh, project that aims to get like betas and unreleased games and unreleased ports and tech demos all put together so people can check them out. Now, this is a Dreamcast prototype of Sega GT, the racing game that features a famous Nintendo character. Yeah, Project Deluge is just like the gift that keeps on giving. And I did say last week, like, I'm sure we'll cover some more interesting things from it over the <laughs> next couple of weeks. Soon, though. So yeah, this is um, Sega GT for the Dreamcast. And obviously, you know, at this point, you know, Sega and Nintendo were still big enemies, you know, still kind of like playground chat. So obviously this is probably just a tongue-in-cheek thing that Sega put in the game and then obviously had to kind of remove before the game came out. But yeah, Luigi... um in in the unreleased like demo version of the game an early build of the game is the uh, what what you call him in a race the flag waver the flag yeah bearer at the at he the starts is, a race with a checkered flag yeah he starts yeah, a race yeah. with a checkered flag and there's a, a very funny stretched looking version of the ouija kind of waving you off in an early build of this game which i think is hilarious now i was a fan of sega rally um yeah. mm. i don't know much about sega gt was was this a like a another part of the series it was more of a sim kind of game wasn't it it yeah. was more of a yeah not like a, a straight up arcade racer it was kind of the the equivalent to gran turismo i was okay. going to say okay. it, it was yeah. it was a, a competitor to gran turismo because of the level that they're actually even playing it on is called sony gt2 which is actually yeah. a reference to gran turismo 2 as well with a really odd looking map which i thought was trying to look like a like Luigi as well, the shape of the map. <laughs> so yeah, quite quite a few references in just this one screenshot of the level. I wonder how he ended up in here though. That must have just been Sega developers, maybe after a few beers one night going, I know what would be funny. Yeah, I imagine they just kind of made him and stuck him there as a placeholder until, yeah. you know, the, the final game came out where I'm sure it was probably some sort of like bikini clad lady in the end. I've not actually <laughs> played the game, but it's usually the case. But yeah, it it does look like there's some effort has gone into making him, which is quite funny. But I wonder if what would have happened if they actually did release the game with him in there. That's the thing, if it had ended up in there accidentally. That's quite a brave thing to do, isn't it? Because if the code was kind of buried away and someone figured it out, I imagine that would have been a lawsuit back then when they were yeah. at each other's throats, you know, N64 and Dreamcast were like arch rivals, weren't they? So uh, yeah, very funny, though, your little uh, Nintendo ninja sneaking into a, uh, a Sega game and someone put it in the comments there. Very good. So if you want to check that out, I'll link that up in our show notes. Now, often when we talk to developers on this show who worked on video games decades ago, you know, a lot of them have got fond memories. A lot of them kind of struggle a bit to remember, you know, what they did 30, 40 years ago. It's very rare that we hear a story of a developer actually spotting a problem in a game they made 40 years ago and actually fixing it. But this is a game called um, Arctic Adventure, where the developer has done just that. He spotted a typo in the game. And he's gone back and actually corrected it all this time later. Yeah, this is really mad. It's 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 kind of crazy. This is a 
legendary Harry McCracken. And he's basically created a text adventure for the TRS-80, but he created mm. it as a teenager, so like 40 years ago. And um, it was inspired by Scott Adams, of course, who we've had on the podcast. Who, yeah, legend. Um, yeah, did the adventure series. And um, it's, it's really interesting because he'd actually lost this game. So he, he wrote it when he was 15 years old, and it was published in a book. So a lot of these games were just published as books and you know then you'd write the code in and uh, type in listings yeah yeah exactly and um he'd lost it and he'd he'd kind of forgotten about the game as well and um he he didn't have a copy of this book and it was called the captain 80 book and uh basically someone managed to acquire it but also told him that um the game is got a bug in it and that bug renders it unwinnable so um he was thinking Right, um, I'm going to try and get it working on a on a modern system. So he he spent um, five or six hours typing it out on his iPad, and wow. uh, <laughs> that is commitment on an iPad. <laughs> yeah. And then he he had it restored in digital form, and he and he kind of uh, uh, found out that um, it was unplayable, and uh, it consisted of a single missing zero in the character right. scri- uh, string. And you know, a lot of these listings back in the days were were kind of put in incorrectly weren't they i've got most of them yeah yeah and there always had to be a bit of a correction so he ended up fixing this uh but he also as he fixed it more bugs occurred so he had mm. to kind of fix those as well and you know he, he brings up a good point he's like should i have left it originally how it was and uh or should i have kind of gone back to it and he thought you know what i developed it so 30, 40 years later why not go back to my own code and kind of fix it? And um, he's now actually released Arctic Adventure and he's, he's made it available online. So uh, you don't even need the TRS-80 to play it. Um, you can just play it within your browser, of course, like you can with many things these days. But um, just kind of being able to find a childhood game that you created and then repairing it 40 years later, I, I just think that's yeah. a, a really kind of wonderful story. And especially having it in a text form as well, which is just amazing. And then having to put it in and debug it yourself. Yeah, he absolutely made the right choice going back and fixing it. And the satisfaction you must have got from finally knowing that, you know, after 40 years, it's a game that people can beat now. Um, because that was my, I mean, I'm, I'm not a programmer anymore at all. I did do a bit as I got probably like nine, 10 years old in, into my early teens Learned a bit of basic, did MC on the Amiga for a bit as well. Forgotten everything I ever knew about programming now. But that was kind of my experience. A lot of the time was you'd spend most of your time trying to get mistakes that you made corrected, wouldn't you? That was a big experience of mine. Whether I was just crap at it, I don't know. But I, I remember spending most of my time trying to fix problems. Well, he, he said he's also kind of added some things in for the uh, modern generation to help them. Mm. Because, uh, you know, this is an old text adventure. So you've got a dog that follows you around and helps you win the game. Yeah. <laughs> but also, um, he's got a rudimentary slot machine simulator in there. And, he, and and I heard him on another podcast, actually, he's on This Week in Tech, and he says, you know, now slot machines and kind of gambling and playing in games is kind of a, a bit of a standard as well, mm. actually. But back then, it was it was really a new thing to have a like little tiny casino hidden in the Arctic or something like that, you know. 
We were talking about that last week, like hidden games, you know, retro games in uh, in modern games. It looks like it's been going on longer than we thought, actually. So since this is 1981. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's not many developers that would care enough to go back and do that, I don't think. So it's very commendable that he did. So if you want to play it, I'll, uh, I'll put that in our show notes as well. If, if you check out arctic81.com and uh, there's a whole kind of story and background behind the game. And he's also done it in that TRS-80 font as well. So <laughs> the site is just absolutely beautiful. Now, before we chat to Stephen Leary from Terrible Fire, um, you know, we love our Raspberry Pi projects. Now, this is um, a Raspberry Pi Pico handheld that emulates a Specky and the Commodore 64. Now, this thing looks wild. <laughs> yeah, so we've seen the Pico before, um, which is the Pico Raspberry Pi, which is uh, a really tiny four dollar microcontroller for the raspberry pi and uh, this enables you to kind of play games on it and, and, and smaller systems it was low specs remember that one that i talked about a while ago which was a credit card yeah uh, a full little credit card system with a qwerty keyboard yes well basically this is the kind of similar style of add-on but it's been turned into a multi-retro emulator system and uh what it contains is it, it contains a custom board that's powered by the Pico that has a games controller underneath it attached, but it also has a VGA output. So what you can do is you can put your controller on the top of it. You can have the option of having an LCD screen there, or you can have it switch style going out. But of course, not HDMI, VGA uh, straight to your monitor. And... Mm. um being the kind of power that it is, this uh, small one, you're not going to be able to do like Dreamcasts or anything on the Pico, but um, you can do a C64 and, uh, of course, a ZX Spectrum as well. You imagine you could probably do NES games as well. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Because no, it, it looks, I mean, <laughs> I will link up the gallery. It's an article on Tom's Hardware, and you can scroll through the pictures. I mean, really... This is kind of, it looks proper homebrew, doesn't it? You know, you've got, it's not, you described it as a D-pad and a controller. Really, this is micro switches. Yeah, totally. you press with your there's finger. No, there's <laughs> no case switches. on it. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a raw kind of circuit board. But also, yeah. like, you know, I always thought that the Raspberry Pi Zero was the smallest Pi. And, uh, mm. yeah, this Pico is just absolutely tiny. And uh, it's so cheap. I'm, I'm really thinking of getting one myself. You know, it's... Uh, it's, it's got like 264k RAM on there. And uh, yeah, it's just awesome. You know, when the Pico came out, because I'm generally, well, as you guys know, I'm the guy that gets every new Raspberry Pi whenever they release them usually. And the Pico came out and I looked at it and it was like, you know, the way the Raspberry Pi Foundation were talking about it is that it's intended for embedded use and industrial use. And it was the first one that actually I didn't order on day one. Yeah. But now I'm seeing so many little projects coming out. Cause, I mean, it's pretty much the size of like a, just a microchip, isn't it? Yeah, you know, really, it's, 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 it's tiny. Very small. And, and yeah. like I think, you know, Raspberry Pi always intends stuff to come out as kind of a controller, and then of course <laughs> people turn it into a retro games machine. So uh, it's cool that all these little add-ons are kind of getting there, and maybe we'll have a scene of these like little Pico devices and stuff. And uh, all all this takes is someone to print a three D case on there, and you know, you've you've got a wicked little portable like Spectrum or uh, C64. And it also says it does the Atari 800 as well. Yeah, I imagine all that generation it can probably do. Joe hasn't ever got on the Raspberry Pi kind of train, have you? Have you ever been tempted to kind of build a little, like, 
emulation box in a joystick or yeah, something? Yeah, I have been tempted to have like the Pandora's box, you know, the arcade kind of cabinets and stuff like that, but I just wouldn't know where mm. to start. And you know, when you get them pre-built for you online, they're always yeah. really, really, really expensive. But I do really like the look of them, you know, and also like, you know, I've got a few friends who have just got the little Raspberry Pi boxes where you just plug into your TV and plug a SNES controller into a USB SNES controller and then you've got a SNES there, do you know what I mean? I, I do really like them, so I have been tempted with them, but I just don't know where to start. And then, like, whenever I feel like you guys talk about them, it's just over my head. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Ravi's got a torrent or two. He could write to an SD card. Yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> but it is a mix. I've got, I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say I've probably got about 12 of them. <laughs> so different models around. Well, I'll have one I can you, see three now. I have a torrent of yeah. Ravi. Torrents, I'm well beyond Torrents. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Torrents are retro to Ravi. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it is amazing to see the uses. And you're right, Ravi. I mean, you know, often they come up, you read these articles, it's like, this is designed for industrial heating controllers. Yeah, next day you see it. Yep, someone's running Mega Drive games on it. Yeah, I Always just happens. think how smaller are these Raspberry Pis going to get? Yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're going to have the postage stamp pie, and that'll be the next one, and you'll be able to do a Game Boy on it or something. But, you know, we were talking on our patrons' hangout um, last weekend, you know, about the original Raspberry Pi. And I remember getting that and, like, you were saying you used it as a Cody box. And when I use my original Raspberry Pi, you know, you can even see the mouse pointer lagging sometimes on it, moving the mouse around the desk. Yeah. It was that slow. So in a decade, it's come on leaps and bounds. Yeah, and, and uh, these things can be really impressive, you know. Uh, I, I'm just amazed by this. And, like, I'm just even looking at it now and it's got, like, a pinout for a joystick as well and stuff. So there's potential for it to really grow. Like the size of this, you could do like a Commodore 64 DTV kind of a yeah. inside a joystick little device with it as well. Yeah, they're really cool. Well, we have Monster Joysticks um, who supported us a couple of weeks ago as well. I don't know if I've, next time you're around, Joe, I've got to let you sit down with my Monster Joysticks. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the solution for Joe. Yeah, yeah maybe, yeah. You'll be buying one next day, trust me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, long may the creativity on the retro scene on the Raspberry Pi, which is something, you know, we had Evan Upton on the show last year. It's something that the Raspberry Pi Foundation are really behind the retro stuff. So uh, long may it continue. And I will link that story up and everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, let's give a huge thank you to the lifeblood of this show. This is our wonderful patrons. And I really do mean that. They are the lifeblood of this show. We couldn't do it without them, could we? Totally not, you know. Um, we love the patrons, and they help us keep independent, and they also help us with our war against uh, Gardener's World, <laughs> <laughs> our main rival podcast in the charts. Um, but you know, they do help us keep independent, and this show is basically we haven't got anyone big behind us. It's just it's just three of us guys enjoying it, and uh, our patrons have formed a great community around it, and it, it keeps it fun as well. You know, it means it's. It's not just like work. And the great thing about it is we have loads of meetups and stuff as well. So we've done our monthly patron meetup, which is a basically a huge kind of Brady Bunch style chat where we're all on <laughs> camera and we're all chatting to each other about different systems. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. How we can help each other out. Uh, we all say good night at the end and <laughs> it's like uh, really good fun. But also we have the Retro Hour After Hours, which is just an awesome little podcast where we're talking about our memories of, you know, older systems. I think we're going to do the Dreamcast next. And uh, we're talking about the retro years as well. So, you know, our memories, the naughty stuff that I got up to, you know, um, stuff that 
Joe was fighting over in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> All the new technology launches Dan was waiting for. It's it's really good fun. And, you know, by supporting us, you get a load of bonus features, but you also help this show kind of chug along. Yeah, and you also get the main podcast ad free and early most weeks as well. But you're right. I mean, it's just the fact is without our patrons, we'd have to pay to do this show, which, you know, we couldn't afford to do. So really, it's thanks to you guys that we can put it out every single Friday. We can devote time to getting these incredible guests on. Because we were thinking today, I mean, you know, <laughs> I was saying to you guys, like, I dedicate most of Thursdays to editing like the, the following show. But I probably spend around, I'd say, 10 hours a week just editing this show. That's without doing the research and without, you know, finding all the news stories. So there is a lot of work behind the scenes that go on which is nice we can just focus on that and our patrons will do you know the, the other stuff that you know pays for the show and just keeps it going yeah. so writing massive, and researching questions you know that's yep. that's a that's a massive task when you have lots of guests yeah. and then arranging it and working out international time zones and everything so we do do a lot of stuff and uh, this just really helps us do that and keep the show chugging along yeah, and of course, for uh, backiners on Patreon, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you this week to Jeff Owen from the Beyond Farpoint podcast. Reese Clapworthy. Clyde Radcliffe. MCSH. And Lucas Poor Hashimi. Who all backed us on Patreon. We massively appreciate your support. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it on our website right now on the front page of theretrohour.com. Thing is, Joe, you and I both know that if Gardener's World or Gardener's Question Time podcast approached Ravi to go on, he'd be off in a heartbeat. You oh, guys yeah, just need to let me give me a gardening section and then we'll be good. We'll be there. We'll be good. Ravi's <laughs> weekly gardening tips. And we'll be yeah, there. Gardening yeah. with Ravi. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks very much for your support and for uh, getting the show in the podcast up there with Gardener's Question Time each week. Right then, next, we are going to be talking all about the incredible terrible fire project with our special guest Stephen Leary next on the Retro Hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event when we welcome on this week's very special guest and today it is an honour to be joined by our guest who's um, helped Ravi and I, you know, get more out of our Amigas recently. I must admit, I wouldn't play my CD32 anywhere near as much as I do now without our guest's incredible products this week. Let's welcome on Stephen Leary from the Terrible Fire Project. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you guys? Very good, thank you. Now, um, before we get into all that, it's always nice to kind of just find out where your journey began. I mean, you know, kind of going back to when you first got into computers, what was your first machine and what, what got you into it initially then when you were young? Uh, my first machine was a rubber keyed ZX Spectrum I got for Christmas. I can't, it was seven or eight. I think it must have been eight. And um, that was just, you know, the tape loading experience. It was 48K. So there was, there was always a, a bunch of games that would come on the on the magazines that you couldn't play because they were, but even by that time, um, one to eight games were out, I think. So um yeah i was always lusting after the next machine but never could never get one and i think eventually i managed to wangle my way up to an amiga um 600 you weren't building accelerators for the spectrum already were you at that age no <laughs> no, I mean, no, uh, no i wasn't I, 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 I wasn't um i was i was probably building soapbox racers i don't know if there's a translation for uh, for americans for international audience but um i think that that's yeah, um, yeah. Building soapbox racers and crashing them basically, and having, and having hit terrible accidents. 
Well, what was your Amiga setup like back in the day then? You said you had a 600 and like, were you a bit of a, a power user or did you just use it for general gaming or did you get into the applications and stuff like that? So it's funny you mentioned that because um, I was encouraged to get an Amiga 600 by somebody who was working as a games developer at the time, um, a lad called Kev Brady. And he had sort of coached me into sort of doing a bit of machine code programming on the on the spectrum and he kind of got me into sort of just the basics of getting sprites moving around and stuff like that on the spectrum but it was really limited as you can imagine and he kind of sent me a, a, a couple of discs with i think dev pack 2 on it and some some sample code and and stuff like that so i i would have had a an amiga 600 i got the epic pack so it had the hard disk it had a 20 meg hard disk which is crazy to think of these days but um, it seemed a lot of the time though, didn't it? It did, it did. Well, I think I, even then I was shuffling stuff back and forward and having to uninstall and install games. But but Kev got me into um, doing 68,000 machine coding and I pretty much did that right from the get-go from having the machine doing some some coding and stuff like that. So yeah, it would have been a, and then I would have, so it would have probably been, the, the machine would probably have been a, a two meg A600 with a 20 meg hard disk and, you know, kitted out for doing, for doing game dev and stuff like that. And were you um, like checking out the demo scene and uh, kind of looking at the PD stuff as well out there and, you know, trying to work out who was actually using like uh, assembler and stuff and who was using other languages? A little bit of that, but mostly that was, I mean, we didn't have, I mean, we didn't have the internet by then. We just simply didn't have it. We had, the, we had, the, the, you know, our magazines were our internet. That's, so that was our, our only source of information. And then I would get occasionally get sent something through by Kevin. He would say, "Let's check this out, or look at that, and look at this." And yeah, and and I suppose you know, I mean, I grew up in the Outer Hebrides. It was very limited access to. to I mean, we had magazines, but there wasn't really that many computer stores, and they didn't last very long. The ones that we had, so yeah, I don't think I was really looking at what was in assembly and what wasn't. I know people at school were doing Amos stuff. A lot of the guys I was at school with were doing Amos, and I sort of stood out as a, a weirdo because I was doing assembler. Would you think that kind of isolation helped you uh, get into creating stuff and stuff just out of necessity or just giving you something to do? Well, a lot of it was giving, giving us something to do because um, in the winters, there wasn't really a whole lot you could do. I mean, we had, we had like 70, 80, 90 mile an hour gales a lot of the time. And, you know, wow. you were coding away and and then you you get a power cut and that would be that'd be that. So at least with the, with the Amiga, you could get back up and running quite quickly. With the Spectrum, it was, you know, back to the tape and... And, and reloading everything back from scratch, wasn't it? Well, how did you get into electronics? So, um, ironically, um, I wanted to go to, you know, I, so I was, I, come um, 1996 and I was going to go to university and I had a couple of choices. I could have gone and done computing science or I could have gone and done, um, I could have, I mean, I was taking my pick of, of, you know, I was having a look at what I was going to do and, I think my parents and my dad had been an electrician and he, and they didn't really think this computing thing was going to go anywhere and that I would be better off getting a job and trying to work out, you know, going to university, learning electronics, because then I, because ironically I could learn to repair stuff. And we all know how things went after that, you know, become a completely disposable society. But that's what I, I did. At, I did at university. I did, I did a four year bachelor's degree in electronic and electrical engineering. And then I topped that off with a with a seven year PhD program from the same department. 
And uh, did that give you like huge equipment to labs and uh, yeah. huge access to labs and stuff like that? Yeah, and to be honest, though, after I mean, after a while, the sort of stuff I'm doing now, I was teaching to kids. I was teaching, you know, while I was doing my PhD, I was teaching that to simple electronics, uh, analog electronics, digital electronics, and all that sort of stuff. I was teaching that to the first years and second years as they came through. Well, a PhD is uh, pretty much a specialisation in a subject. So um, what what was the kind of area that you decided to to specialise in? So I kind of, I kind of, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. And it's one of the things that I find quite, um, quite funny when, when people uh, talk about the things that I've achieved, because I would say my greatest achievement is getting my PhD, because I did my PhD in a sort of um, grand unified theory type area, specializing with some guys, um, a guy called Martin van der Mark, who, um, who passed away at the beginning of 2020, and a guy called John Williamson, um, who's, who's very much alive, is still here in Glasgow. And the, the two of them and the three of us have, have, have done written papers together. We've, we've held, you know, hosted conferences. I have some of the, the, the biggest body of work of that stuff published in my, in my name. Um, it was an incredible honor to work with those guys. I mean, Martin was the smartest guy I've ever met in my entire life by, by like six or seven country miles. You know, it was just, um, it was just such a privilege and an honor to, to be, to be able to work with him. So yeah, it was, it was a relativistic electromagnetism, um, you know, formulated in, in, in new algebras and, and, but that kind of was like the basis of a, of a, of a theory that these guys were, were putting together. Well, that sounds uh, hugely <laughs> above our heads, <laughs> but yeah, fantastic. So, so Amiga accelerators are a little bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, you know, the, these Amiga accelerators that we'll get into a bit further, I mean, kind of what were your earliest projects that you made for like your home computers and was, was the stuff that you were making just for yourself initially? You know, I did my PhD and that really basically consumed every waking moment until 2007. And before that, I was doing like, little add-ons, joysticky type stuff, registers things for, for Spectrums and BBC Micros. And then I think I kind of got my mojo back a bit after, because with my PhD, I was working till I was, till about 10, 11 o'clock, sometimes 4 o'clock in the morning. And then when that stopped, I just stopped for a year. I just didn't do anything in my spare time at all. Um, and after that, I think I, my first sort of major project was I worked on the the core that's now part of Mister and Mist for the Archimedes. So I produced that that FPGA core, um, a bit like sort of Mini Meg, but for the Mist. And and was, the Mist was like the precursor to the Mister, wasn't it? That's that's good. I actually have one of the very. I think it's probably one of like the first four or five prototypes, hand built ones by Till Harbum. Um, or I'm not sure actually how you say his name. I, I probably I'm probably mangling it but that's how i pronounce it t-i-l t-i-l-l harbum um and the mist the original mist um i think when 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 he came up with this the see if i can remember the you know the raison d'etre for it was that the mini make had been out there and there'd been these boards but they were they and they and they worked fine and they were brilliant but you just couldn't buy them so teal devised this board, this sort of framework where you could do FPGA development work on it. Um, he'd have, he had an, an ARM processor on there that handled the IO in a standard way that all the cores could share. I think the reason I actually got into it was I was actually working on doing an Atari ST FPGA core, and so was he. 
And we kind of looked at it and I went, well, you're much further ahead with the development of all this. You have all my code and I'll go and do the, the Archimedes. And that's kind of how we got going. And I think there's some tiny little bits of my original Atari ST code in the um, the mist in the original Atari ST core. I think there's some tiny little bits left um, to do with the MFP timers because I just ha- happened to have written it in a, in a particularly nice way that was a bit more elegant than the way Teal had written it. So the Archimedes stuff then just took off and I, and I, and I spent, I think, probably 2012 to 2014 working on that and kind of had had my fill of FPGA development work at the end of that. And, and, it's, and it has been, and then it's been ported over by other people onto, onto Mister now. Yeah, that's cool because all that kind of stuff like, uh, mini mig and everything la- laid the foundation uh for the mister and and now we've got a huge multi-system kind of uh device which is just really good so interesting to hear you worked on that um well tell us about the terrible fire project and uh what it is and uh why was it needed um the terrible fire project well i just kind of i'll tell you what really what started it is i wanted to do some pcb stuff i wanted to do physical boards because i spend all my day at a desk writing code and I'd come through the, the Archimedes project um, and thought, hey, you know, the I'm actually spending six, seven hours, eight hours a day at work coding for work and then I come home and I spend six, seven hours coding for fun. And it's a lot of time sitting at the screen just writing code and I just wanted to do something slightly different and, and do some, some software development, uh, get away from the so- software development and get more into the I mean, although it's hardware development, it's still typing stuff into a into a text editor, basically. So I thought, let's let's just do some PCB designs. And I I had looked around, and I think one of there was a couple of things that had prompted me. So that that was the first thing I wanted to get into to PCB design. The second thing was I at the time couldn't find a cheap-ish A five hundred RAM board or accelerator card or anything. And there was no there was nothing I could just. I mean, there was a couple of them on eBay, but they were very expensive. They were like going, even back then, they were going for 200, 300 pounds. So I thought, well, you know, I could maybe do this. And, and, and I bought a, bought a Blizzard 060 card and thought, that, and, and it was something like 800 pounds. And I just thought, you know, there's got to be a way, there must be a way we can get to building one of these for less than these cards are going nowadays. Now, I just tried knocking up something quite simple in, um, like um, an O2 accelerator mm. and see if I can get it working. And, you know, I think I kind of made a pledge to myself back then that if I had a design in a, in a design in Eagle or whatever, a PCB design, I wouldn't sit looking at it forever. I would sit, sit checking it forever. I would send it off, get it built and start working out if it, what was wrong with it and then do another one and then do another one and do another one. And so that's kind of where it started. I just, I, I think that was, 2016, um, the end of August 2016, I, I fired off my first um, terrible fireboard to the boardhouse and came back a couple of weeks later. Well, how are your products sold and made? I mean, do you do them yourself? Have you got other people? And what's kind of the model there? So it's kind of evolved over time, but I think initially what I thought I would do is, very initially what I thought I would do is I would just make everything open source. And uh, I've, I find that, I was uncomfortable with people changing my work. I mean, there was things that were legitimately broken and I accepted those things as as changes, but there was also things where people were just changing it for style or for what they perceived as style, 
without having actually tested it. And I, and I, and I, you know, maybe this is, I mean, this could be a failing in me, but I found that quite irritating. So initially it was, here's a link. You can buy the PCBs on dirty PCBs. I think it was dirty PCBs to start with. And then I switched to a model where I would buy a batch and then I would just sell the batch. Like say, say the board was, was three quid, I'd sell it for five. Uh, yeah. on eBay or something like something like that or whatever it was I would get enough of a profit to buy to to recycle to pay for the next batch of boards for me so that I could and I basically found myself in a position where I could just keep it was the development so the development costs of the boards themselves were paying for themselves and that was that was fantastic that got me through the first three or four boards nowadays it's it's evolved again and again and again and nowadays the latest board the TF1230 I have never ordered it at all. I have never had one delivered to me from the boardhouse. Um, this morning, I got one from one of the um, from one of the forum users, Goose. He sent me one with. A, I said I haven't got any spare. I haven't got any blanks, so I'm not even building them myself anymore. Uh, although I could do them, um, I'm just they're just going to uh, guys like John Hurtle, Chucky, or they're going to uh, Mark Brown, Super Duper, or they'll go to Alan Marks in in the in in Canada, and. You know, probably Alan Alan won't send me something because it doesn't make sense to send something transatlantic. But they'll send me the prototype built, um, and 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 that keeps me free from the building part of things to just um, keep doing the, the the development work on the on the firmwares and things. Well, we we need to ask the question: Why terrible fire? It's not the most <laughs> positive name for a, <laughs> a kind of board, like yeah. yeah. If I had, and that, these are, these are made very well. They're not going to burn your house down. Just to get out. <laughs> I mean, it stems back from from um, I worked with my best man on a on a few projects um, in the in the noughties. I, I worked on um, a few projects with him, and we had a few times things went on fire. And he's also um, one of the guys who does pyrotechnics. He does like properly licensed display fireworks and stuff. So um, he he has. On occasion, you know, he has come back from a night doing displays and added things to the shrine of terrible fire. And we had a, <laughs> we had a we had a place where we had all the things that had burned or blown up, and we just put them in a pile. And it was the shrine to terrible fire. And we, that was actually where the name came from. Well, f- famously, uh, Steve Wozniak's first um, Mac sat on fire, didn't it, or one of his homemade computers? So it's in tradition there. Yeah. But so, so we just, I mean, he, uh, you know, I'd say I'm ready to test the new prototype or I'm ready to test something. And he goes, it'll be a terrible fire or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, and I was just, and I think I was out running one day and I, and I was thinking for a name for, for the YouTube channel that, that I had back in the day. And I just thought, terrible fire, why not? It's memorable as well. I mean, people remember it. So yeah, definitely, definitely works to your advantage, I think. I wasn't, I, to, 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 I actually was intending to have more fire on the on the on the show but it didn't ever it didn't ever pan out well, what kind of equipment and setup have you got at home to do all this oh my god <laughs> i have taken over residence in what was formerly a recording studio now so um this was uh, it was actually a, it was actually a radio station uh, i won't say the name of the radio station but um uh, i have managed I, so i have i've kitted the place out and the more the more i found the more stations I can set up, the more efficient I can work. So if I can have one station set up for the CD32, one station set up for the 
Amiga 500 one station setup. I have a permanent station set setup at the moment for the 1200. In fact, two at the moment for the 1200. But if I can get these multiple stations, and every one of the stations has a logic analyzer and a, usually with a built-in oscilloscope, some kind of display device for displaying the output of the Amiga or capturing it onto a computer, uh, either a laptop or a desktop computer for doing the development work there at that station probably a bench power supply as well that's my bare minimum setup for for each um each one of them it's usually about a hundred channel logic analyzers um most of them are networked so i can i can sit up here in, in my office and remotely control my lab basically because i remember on the uh youtube videos you were stuffed into a room and you had like all of, all of the kind of stuff in in one small space so it's good to hear that you've got all these like multiple stations now uh, does it make it a lot more efficient it will once it's all once it's all set up but uh yeah i i've i've taken I've, as i say i've i've been i've taken to buying other projects and i've filled some i filled a lot of the space i should, probably should have shouldn't have done that but i haven't <laughs> i haven't properly unpacked from the move yet and and i, I think it's going to take a, it's going to take years to unpack from that move would well, you think stuff like printable pcbs and the kind of democratization of like hardware has made it a lot easier to kind of start up as a as a as a one-man show and like make it a lot more fun i don't even know if i ever thought about it being a one-man show but it certainly has made um the kind of stuff that i'm doing uh, yeah it, it's a lot easier it, it the, the 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 price drop of this stuff if, if it was costing a thousand pounds to spin a board i probably wouldn't be doing doing this and it probably wouldn't be uh, we'd have to be doing volumes right from the get-go which we don't have to do now we can just kind of buy in batches of 20 or something like that and batches of 50 if we're feeling really really confident in the board so but i do think it yeah i do think it's it's enabled the, the hobbyist to get his work out to the masses i suppose is, is a good way of putting it yeah which has kind of spurred, helped definitely spur on the Amiga market as well. There's so many adapters and uh, devices out there at the moment now compared to like you said when you started and everybody was buying older older devices and stuff off uh, eBay and, you know, playing high prices. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, these things were, were failing. They had patched tracks on them. Um, you know, at least now, even if we aren't able to, I mean, even for just general Amigas, um, some of the work that guys like John Hurtle have done, and, and there's other guys that have done similar things, I don't want to just single him out, but I just can't remember off the top of my head who has, but they've been doing things like the re-Amiga, where they've, you know, they've got the original chipsets have come off Amigas, where the boards have got faults on them, but the chips are perfectly fine, and it's giving those chips a chance to live again in, in, a, in a new board. Well, we have like listeners from all over the world, you know, who are into all different platforms and, you know, all different kind of expertise levels. I mean, at its most basic, there might be people listening and thinking, it sounds cool upgrading yeah, an Amiga, for example, but kind of at its base, having one of your cards in a system like the Amiga, what does it bring extra to the machine and what are people using them for? Well, I've never really understood. Um, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. I would always say to people, you're going to get better performance out of WinUAE or an emulator, right? So... If what you want is a really, really fast machine, tr- start with the emulator, you know, d- don't just dive straight in. But what um, my card does is, or what my cards do generally is, 
I've got sort of three basic things I try and do with them. One is try and make it fit in as naturally as possible so that you get the speed increase without having to do as much configuration or having to set stuff up or poke things or have scripts or things so that your average guy in the street can plug it in and see a difference straight away. So that that's sort of number one. I, I wanted to just be, you plug it in and assuming that it works and all the connections, sometimes you have to clean the connections and stuff like that, but um, you plug it in and you get a faster machine straight away. Sometimes there's instructions, but sometimes most of the time if I can get away with it, just try and make it as plug and play as possible. And the other thing is just trying to make it as cheap as possible because that's the key thing. The, 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 if you want to, to get your stuff out to as large an appeal as possible, then what you need to do is is make it as cheap as possible. But you want to be, I mean, I do want to be the lowest common denominator. I want the terrible fire stuff to be, you know, the bottom of the range. I want them to be the the, the thing that everybody has because they're so affordable. And, and I also wanted them to be able to be produced. So the third thing was I wanted them to be producible globally. So the, the, the guys that we have working on this can produce them in any country. Well, I think we were producing them on three continents anyway, and we're selling them on four. I say we are selling them. I'm not actually selling anything at all, personally. I don't actually sell anything at all. But yeah, um, sorry if I maybe didn't answer your question, but... Uh, no, no, that, that makes total sense. And I think, you know, from a personal perspective, and you know, as I mentioned at the start, I mean, obviously I've got one of your um, Terrible Fire 330 cards in my CD32, and that transformed that machine for me because, I mean, that was the Amiga console that came out, you know, in the early 90s. I've had one since then, but really it got to a stage where I was burning a few of the... Uh, CD compilations that fans had made to get a few different games on there. But having your card in there, it turns it into really, you know, like a, a souped up Amiga 1200. Now I put all my games on a launcher and everything. So I love the fact that you also target these kind of more niche platforms like the CD32. And I've seen some people putting the cards in like a CD TVs and things like that as well. So do you kind of think it's important to expand even those systems that, you know, maybe weren't as popular as stuff like the Amiga 500? I, I think those are the ones that I really do want to push because the accelerator cards that are for those that are start kicking around for those now nowadays if you can find one are extortionately expensive i mean look at how much the sx was it the sx 32 i think 32 yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that was yeah. before the kipper 2k so the so the, the initial rise of the kipper 2k riser and then you got this the this the sx the sx boards were i mean the th- as you, i think in one of your videos Dan, you said that the tf330 was comparable to the sort of top of the line, uh, what you could have got for the CD32 back in the day. Now, people will argue, yeah. well, there's no joystick port. There's a, Sorry, there's no parallel port, no serial port, no floppy port. And my argument to that is, well, I can't see that, that as, as many people would want that as would want no. what, what's been presented. So it's basically the really, the bare bones, keep it simple. Where projects, and I don't just mean Amiga hardware projects, I mean projects in general, Everywhere, anywhere you go, any discipline, any, you know, software engineering products, projects, you know, mechanical engineering products, civil engineering products, they all fail because they try to do too much. They're too complicated and they try to overreach the ones that do fail. The ones that succeed are the ones that keep it simple. And that's what I've always tried to do is just keep it as simple, keep the goals achievable, keep and keep the promises to a minimum, I suppose. So nobody's disappointed. 
And I agree as well, because it's got everything you need on there to make that, you know, system I mentioned then. You've got the, the compact flash slot, you know, I've got an SD card adapter in there. It's got the RAM and the, the O30 chip on there to play some of the more high-end games. And, you know, no one's printing out from the Amiga these days. That's kind of the stuff that you need, you know, to get that great little gaming platform in the CD32, I think. Yeah, the CD32 is actually my favourite Amiga, hands yeah. down. Um, I have six of them. I have the FMV module, um, <laughs> you know, and my my desire for things like like I I I I've designed a riser with with one of the lads here in in, in Edinburgh. You know, I, I'm building these things, some of these things, because I want them. You know, it's uh, I wanted the the O60 in the CD32. Um, I think Ravi's got one of those. He's got one of the prototypes, and I'm going to come back and visit that and finish it um, now that we've 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 really done something. We've really got the 1200 nailed. But the 1200 is the one that everybody wanted. That was the mass, the thing that the, the masses wanted. But, you know, electrically, there's not that much difference between a CD32 and a 1200. And, you know, it was a great machine to, to, to prototype all the stuff on and then transfer that over to the, the 1200 and, and, and then send it out. I find it interesting you mentioned the, the FMV module there because that was an expansion that Commodore released for the CD32 back in the day that let you, I think there was only like a little handful of games that had full motion video I think about two or three games. Yeah, it, it wasn't it, many. Yeah. <laughs> but I always wanted one and like you could watch video CDs on it. I mean, is that something you could put on like a, a, a future revision of the Terrible Fire just for fun? It's something I've looked at. It's something that I might try and do in some form or another, but it is quite far down my list at the moment. And I'm trying to think what, it, you know, what, what, I always try to think what is it kind of, what Amiga software do you want to run that you wouldn't be able to do on, a, on another platform? So as much as I, I don't have anything against people using like things like Lightwave or productivity stuff on an Amiga, I'm not against it, I'm not anti it, but you know, I'm not gonna. I don't think that that's the market that I'm catering for. I'm looking for the guys that are wanting to play Nemac Four at flat out on their, <laughs> their Amiga. You know, things that you can't get on another platform. That's yeah. that's my you know, and that that's why you know an O60 on a twelve hundred and an O or or CD thirty two. That's what I'm targeting. Quake. Well, Quake's not really an Amiga game. It's not. I mean, it's a for me. It's an, it's it's a benchmarking tool, but it's not something that I think. I would ever seriously sit down and play on an Amiga. Yeah, Alien Breed 3D they're running on yeah. an O60. Yeah. That'd be yeah. nice. Yeah, exactly. I was just it's just really just trying to look at the software that's only available on an Amiga or you know on an Amiga like platform that you wouldn't that there was no PC version for, for example. Well, you hang around on Exo's forum as well. How how helpful has that place been for like hardware chat and is it a good kind of knowledge base? It's a, it's a fantastic um, forum. Um it was set up by Chris Swanson, and I think between the two of us, we've really made it into a quite a friendly place. You know, the the sort of the um, I don't know what to put it. You know, the the sort of arguments that you would find on other forums, you don't get on on that on that forum. You know, you might get an argument about whether a capacitor is going to blow up or something or not like that, but not which system was better in an Atari ST or an Amiga. Those kind of arguments just never happen it's, it's very techy isn't it? it it is and it's it's meant to be there for hardware hardware guys or for people with hardware issues or you know i mean if you've got um you know if you've got an atari falcon and it's blown up and you need it fixed that's that's where i would go 
Well, what's your community support like these days? Because I, I know there was a time last year when I was really sad to see that, you know, the project was put on hold and it seemed like there's some stressful times around then. Are things like mostly positive now then? Are those kind of problems ironed out? Because I think I speak for everyone when I say I, I was really pleased to see that you picked it up and decided to continue with the project. So, I mean, <laughs> so I've got to give some shout outs to people at this point because it would be unfair not to. Um, I would say, number one, John Hurtle, this, I probably would have just, I might have just walked away from everything because I think, you know, this is a hobby. So when people start hassling me, I just, I really just think, well, why, why, I don't want to do this, you know, so I've got to go to something else. You know, I've got a son, I've got other, 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 other interests, you know, I'm a, I'm a pilot as well. So I, I, I put some time into that. Um, but big shout out to, to John Hurtle for that Chucky gang. Um, and, and probably, one of the one of the lads I really wanted to give a shout out to, and I was talking to him about this before this before I came on the show, and he said, "Dog, you know, dude, don't you know, it's, it, don't don't mention me because it's um, it's it's about you." But uh, Banjo Guy Ollie has really sort of given me a pat on the back, told myself, you know, put your big boy pants on and and, and get back out there, and kind of had we've had group therapy sessions about you know being in the public eye. Um, so yeah, we can really thank um, Ollie and and John Hurtle and and the, the guys from the Scottish Amiga Group as well. They um, they've been pretty pretty chilled. I've, I've got to say, like Banjo Guy Ollie, man, some of his stuff is absolutely amazing. If if you're into kind of retro tunes and stuff, definitely check him out. He's a very talented musician. Yeah, so I said to him, I said, to, well, I, I you know I like to shout out people who restore my insanity. So. Um, and, and, <laughs> and he thought that was a great quote so so yeah I'm giving him the shout out well one project we've heard about is the Buffy and uh, that's kind of making the Amiga reach absolutely insane speeds and uh, I, I hear you're doing a bit of work with them or you're helping helping uh, kind of support that yeah so I mean they've been very friendly and basically we're, we're I have built a a card that will take uh, a, a plain sixty-eight thousand and and make it work in a twelve hundred, um, <laughs> just so the, the the Buffy can fit into a twelve hundred, and you know have advised on my experiences with the sixty-eight thousand processors. Really, that's that's and and beyond that, I haven't really done anything except saying I think that that I don't think that's going to work. Try it, or please verify that before you do a, a run of. Of, of ten thousand or, or orders or, or whatever, so just steering and and being a um, um, I don't know what you would a, a resource like a terminal where you can ask questions, I suppose. And uh, that's nice working collaboratively and like you know that project's pretty insane. Like if our listeners don't know, I'm sure you do if you're listening. But uh, their goal is to have like three point two gigahertz and uh, around a thousand MIPS, which is just like insanely fast. For, for, and a gigabyte of RAM. Yeah, for, yeah. for any Amiga, really. Insanely fast, yeah. Just amazing. No, and it will be it will be an amazing project. I think there's some kinks and things that, that need to get ironed out, but um, those are those are getting done. A little bit of progress is getting done every day. Well, would you ever go, I know you mentioned before that your aim is to kind of, you know, get these top-end classic Amigas, but I know there are kind of other accelerators out there with stuff like, you know, PowerPC chips on there and even ARM coprocessors, that kind of thing. Would you ever go beyond 68K and do something like that? On the Amiga, I don't necessarily see the, uh, the point. And, and um, 
I'll explain and qualify my remarks because I don't see that there's a whole lot of PPC software. I heard it expressed recently quite well. It was by the the, the lady that um, that's doing the Buffy project, the the lead on the Buffy project, and and she'd said that Amiga is dead in the sense that Latin is dead in the sense that since the fall of the Roman Empire, there's been no evolution of Latin. And there's really not been very much acceptance of a standard way of doing all this PowerPC or ARM stuff on an Amiga. I don't know as if I don't, but I don't know as if anybody will ever, if the community will ever agree on something like that. And I, I would, I would want to be looking at what value am I going to give somebody with what I'm delivering. And if I'm putting a 300 quid per PC on a, on a card and, and they can run Quake, well, they can run Quake on their PC. So, yeah. you, know, you know, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, and it's not a no, it's just, I don't at the moment see the value of it, but I haven't thought about it too hard because I've got enough projects. Well, those cards go for, I mean, I see them on eBay for like 2,000 pounds and I'm like, who, who is buying those? Yeah, I, I, I mean... Uh, for me personally, my, I have a PowerPC Amiga type computer and it's a Mac Mini, uh, G4 Mac Mini with Morphose on it. And, it, yeah, so. uh, and, and, it's, and it's less than 100 quid. So at that kind of value, I don't see what you would get from plugging that into a 1200. But I mean, that's just my, uh, my opinion. Well, um, there's loads of like little adapters and, and mods out there. What, what are the kind of favorite ones that you've seen? For the Amiga, like uh, something that's kind of stood out to you, like oh wow, that's a neat solution. I really like the A three one four. I thought that was a really clever idea. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I mean by the A three one four? It was like the Raspberry Pi plugged into the um, expansion expansion slot of an A five hundred. Yeah, I saw that. So that 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 acted like a coprocessor where yeah. it would do stuff like video interface but using the raspberry pi power um stream kind of mp3 audio and yeah. instead of kind of taking over the cpu it was like a complement to the amiga wasn't it yeah, you kind of ssh from the amiga to or i don't know if it was ssh or not but you had basically a terminal interface i think it might have been serial port between this the amiga and the and the a314 and i just thought that was a, when i saw that i thought wow that's brilliant i wish i'd thought of that yeah, I think it had a, a VM on there as well. So you could basically like access your Amiga away from uh, home using the Raspberry Pi to actually access it remotely. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, like VNC like style. VNC. Yeah, oh, yeah. Which yeah. is just amazing, really. And it didn't take any of the, um, it didn't take like any of the resources from Workbench really to do that. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was a fantastic little solution. And it was really trying to solve a problem or you know, just trying to to do one thing really, really well, and I, and that's one thing of things I really like is when somebody does does something like that, just has an idea and does it really, really well. Well, one thing that was really popular back in the day that actually I'm very pleased to see has had a resurgence in recent years, and I know some of them have been going a long time. Is uh, user groups, and I know you're part of the Scottish Amiga group. How do you guys kind of help each other out then? And um, yeah, I guess they give you a lot of support. Um. I mean, it's obviously been very different times the last two years. Um, I mean, we there's a there's a church hall in Crossmaloof just down the road here. We normally before COVID would meet up there and have a like sort of get together where everybody would bring their machines and show and tell and 
you know, I would always bring two or three machines, set them up and let people sit down and play on them and just chat, basically. And it's usually set up by, by Rob Cranley um, um, from the, I think he's um, Daedalus on the forums and he's he also does, he's one of the guys on the Amiga Ireland podcast, um, part of the Amiga Ireland group. So, um, yeah, he, he, he lives like about a mile from me. So um, he, he's been very, very good at organizing these these meetups and i think that's that's a, a really good way to to go because you get to see other people's setups and and you know i i would bring stuff along that i'd been working on and give stuff away for free or whatever whatever if you know i've had it hanging around and i've also had people bring terrible fire cards that have been soldered really badly and said could i fix it and i was like <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know I might, I might, I, I'll, I'll have a look but not sure if I can just instantly see what's wrong with it, you know. Reatari is a, a a kind of project that's uh, actually starting to use the uh, TF three five six. So, like, um, uh, what's kind of happening there, and how's Terrible Fire helping out the Atari community? So this is Exos, this is the guy who runs the Exos forum, Chris Swanson. I think this was, I mean, you'd, honestly, you could probably just get him on and, and have him talk about it, but I'll give you the summary. I think basically he's been fixing people's Atari STs worldwide for 10 years, maybe more. And um, there's a standard set of fixes that everybody needs. And sometimes the motherboards are, are past it. They've got damage on them and blah, blah, blah. So sort of same reason for having the re-Amiga, but there's a whole bunch of fixes that people have discovered they need over the years that patches for things like the floppy drive and I, I mean I you know pull up resistors on things and, and stuff like that so so Chris has just basically done a design for it's not a re-Atari it's not like the re-Amiga where the, the tracks were traced this was done from scratch and all of the you know from the schematics that Atari published done from scratch uh, it has four 68,000 slots in it so peripherals will just sit in the 68, 68k slot. I think there's also a fifth one that's 3.3 volts. Um, it's called the H5. That's H Atari H5. And the the terrible fire stuff. I mean, for me, the terrible fire with fast RAM in an Atari S, an STFM that form factor um, is is pretty nice. Um, and it's sort of it, it's actually faster than an Atari Falcon. Um, it just doesn't have the graphics modes of an Atari Falcon. So now there's been that kind of traditional rivalry, and I'm kind of pleased to see that, you know, as a community, people have kind of got past that, and, you know, the Amiga community helps out the ST community, because I think, you know, all working together, it, it it makes amazing stuff like this happen. I mean, did, did you kind of feel like the, the ST community missed out quite a bit on these hardware developments? Because it felt like, for a while, a lot of them have been more, like, Commodore and Amiga-focused. There's some fundamental issues with doing hardware upgrades on those Ataris. They're some advantages that the Amiga has over the Atari, and it's purely that some of these things are, the the chips are socketed on the Amiga when they're not on the Atari. And that just becomes a huge barrier to somebody pulling a chip out and plugging in an accelerator, unfortunately. Um, You know, unfortunately, if you want to sell, if you want to put a TF-536 in a standard Atari, well, first of all, there's no such thing as in a standard Atari, Almost every motherboard has a different layout, and the 68K chip can be in a completely different place in the in the in the on the board and on most of them. And then, even you know, even if you have one of the standard ones where the TF536 is going to fit, 
um, you still need to desolder the, the 68K out before you can put a socket in and then plug in a new accelerator. Um, you know, compare that experience to throwing in something into, you know, any kind of accelerator into a, an Amiga 500, and it's it's massively different. And the Amiga 500 is the side expansion as well, which you can put a CPU on. So I think that that's been the reason that there hasn't been as many upgrades available for the for the Atari ST, and and that, I think that's pretty much the only reason, to be honest. Well, one thing I've seen recently is that you're working on an MSX clone, and this is pretty awesome. We've done one episode on the MSX, and it's such an amazing kind of system. Uh, what's going on there? So that that's Banjo guy, at least. Well, I mean, I'm just going to blame him because he's like, look at this system. Isn't it cool? And I had to look at the system. And I have to admit, I was a bit skeptical to start with, but then when I saw when I saw things like games like Nightmare and Kings Valley and all of these games, oh my goodness, they're so hard and they're so difficult, yet they're so addictive and and brilliant and and amazing, and you can keep playing them. And then I just looked at the prices of MSXs and went, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on there? So uh, there's, a, I mean, when you go when you look at that sort of thing and you think, well, what could I do? And I thought, well, I particular, I mean, I could, you can. You can make a whole system on a chip thing again, um, but it's been done. So I thought, well, why don't I just? I like I like making boards. Why don't I just try making an MSX? I'll just spend a day or two on it and I'll put it together, and then whatever I've got in a couple of days, I'll I'll fire off to the boardhouse. And it came back and it works. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes in it in the in the original in the in the initial one, and I'm about to send off my my second run on it. And hopefully, we should be able to get a you know an MSX for. Hopefully not too much money. It uses all the original chips, but it's um, like there's the, the, using an original Z80 and an original VDP processor and all, and an original YM sound chip. Uh, but everything else is modern tech and surface mount reliable, pre-assembled by the boardhouse. So um, hopefully um, I'll have one of them out. Oh, and I've ditched the tape interface because who needs a tape interface? A USB keyboard. And I think other than that, it's a standard MSX. So it's a cartridge, two joysticks, and and, an, and a USB keyboard if you want to use it for a keyboard. But otherwise, you can just use the, the sticks. And uh, it's interesting because famously, we talked on the podcast, there was a shipment of MSXs that were meant to come over to the UK, and then it got stopped, and kind of the Dutch guys got it, and it got really popular over there. So um, do you think, you know, that some UK people will really like this machine and get into it yeah i i I do i think the uk missed out on the msx but i do also think it probably would have been very difficult to compete with this with the machines that were around at the time price wise it was so much more expensive than things like the spectrum or but then again it was so much better than the spectrum so maybe who knows but i do also think that you know that philosophy that clive sinclair and really sad to hear it he he passed away um, in the last week. That um, you know, I do believe in that philosophy of just trying to make to democratize these things so that they're available to anyone who wants them, um, and to try and keep them available. And that's that's the secret to to getting this stuff out. And I think that's what I've always done. As I said, I've always just tried to get this stuff out to people. And I think the MSX having the MSX clone would be. 
um, would be fantastic for people to have a look at. And there's lots of there's I mean there's lots of different ways you can get into the MSX. I mean, sure you guys have covered it. Um, Open MSX emulator, and there's there's some there's even some uh, some interesting um, MSXs that are for Jamma board MSXs that take cartridges for arcade machines coming out. So, which I think is absolutely fantastic. You mentioned arcades there, and I know recently you've been um, doing some arcade oh, machine oh, projects. No, what, have, what have you been oh, doing? Oh, there? No. This is this is this is yeah another Bungie guy. Always a bad influence. So um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of got um, in July. I bought an arcade, a Street Fighter Two arcade machine, and then I bought uh, a couple of weeks later. I bought um, a multicade for my kid because it was Mario art on it, and he wanted it, and then. A week later, I find a Space Invaders for my wife. That's still not got here, but it's on its way. And two weeks, three weeks ago, I got a Chase HQ. And last week, I bought an Operation Wolf, and it's not got here yet. So, been doing some shopping. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. I mean, I've I've got I've got quite a big house now, but I think I'm running out of space for a kid machine. <laughs> yeah. What projects have you been working on then? You've been doing some stuff that you can drop into these and, machines. And just though. trying to like maintain them as well, I guess. Yeah, so the, the, the it was kind of a brutal intro into it with the Chase HQ machine. Um, Chase HQ machines, are they're just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, they're spectacular. They've got, if you haven't seen them, go and look up go look up on YouTube and look up the, um, the videos of them going. When you catch up with the bad guy, it's a, it's a racing game where you have to catch the bad guy. And if you don't, if you guys don't know it, but probably all do but oh yeah the the lights on the arcade machine the, there's like siren lights that start to flash and it's just that's that's what it's the shiny lights that sold it to me so yeah um but then it was a brutal intro to that because the board didn't work there was issues with the board um i i got a, myself a spare for reference that one had other issues totally separate ones i fixed some of them i've realized what bits of them are easily uh, destroyed i've whipped together um a reproduction chip for that but that's easily destroyed in, in the process of working on that so i have another development station set up right by one of the arcade machines for doing development work on that um that would be that'd be quite a cool project when it's done because it should be that's the bit that handles part most handles most of the steering input controls so if that's reproduced then it could actually be put on a board a carrier board with Maybe a Raspberry Pi, and doing all of the the game, whereas the inputs are then handled by this reproduction chip. Maybe so. There's just some ideas of where I could go with some of this stuff for the future. That's pretty cool. Like a, basically a drop-in replacement for a chip that's not kind of produced anymore. It's it's a pretty simple chip. It's it's an I/O. It's something that takes signals and puts them on a on a bus so it's not it's a good one to start with i think this is my ultimate question now then uh i know it's a lot more complex than a simple arcade chip but could you ever do a replacement for those expensive 060s that um, <laughs> are on the amiga and classic 68k machines that you could just drop in um probably not 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 easily sorry <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I imagine that was probably far too complex, but um, it's always my dream. I mean, it's, well, what I would suggest is that this is probably something where I see the real value in something like Buffy, because effectively what Buffy is, is a software-defined processor. So if we could get something like Buffy in the form factor of an 060 with a 32-bit 
data bus and address bus, and it can chew up through the data at the same rate that the Buffy can uh, on the 16-bit bus. You know, there's some challenges to scaling that up, obviously. But um, if you could go to that level, that's where I see, you know, a drop-in replacement for an 060 that could go much, much faster. Would That's how I would do it, would be with the Buffy-type solution. Well, obviously, you know, we've mentioned the, the Amiga stuff, the arcade stuff that you do in the MSX. I mean, what do you consider... Other platforms, maybe stuff like the, the Acorn Archimedes or the Classic Max or even, you know, consoles like the Mega Drive? Um, I think the Acorn Archimedes I've kind of covered with my Mr. Lifetime. Um, I maybe would do some, maybe I, I could I could see myself doing a, like a memory expansion for that because I have some of the logic for that already and I've got it well understood. The Classic Max have never fascinated me. I don't know why. Um, I, I, I've... Converted to Mac in the last couple of years to modern Macs, but the old Macs, I just have horrible memories of them quacking at me in labs in university. Well, any new cards on the way then? Anything we should look out for that you're working on at the moment you can tell us about? So everybody knows about the, the 1260 that's kind of made its way out there. That's the, the A1200 060 card. The, 12, the 360, the sort of, it's like it's baby, little cousin or baby brother or something. That's not quite finished yet. CD drive support's not working yet, but that will get done this year or early next year. Then there's the um, the 4060, which is basically a thank you to Chucky Gang because he, he hates doing those, um, what do you call them, the 364, 3660, the 3640 cards for the 4000s. They've got like mm. 400 gals on them or something like that. And he... Basically, whenever he's soldering one, I I just get lots of swearing coming up on WhatsApp. So um, <laughs> I've said, "All oh, right, okay, I'll do you, I'll do you, I'll do you, I'll do you one. I'll port the the twelve sixty to the to the four thousand, and that that kind of does work. That's kind of at the stage where it works on all of my machines, but it doesn't work for for John. So um, I think um, Gadget UK's got one as well that he's going to demo off at some point, and I think that's about it. In the mega terms, apart from the TF twelve hundred, which is the adapter for Buffy. Well, Stephen, you know, I just want to say a big thank you to to you for and, and the gang for you know keeping our machines going. And you know, we talked about emulation before, but there's nothing like having the original hardware sometimes. And the fact that you know you're making stuff that can actually achieve these dreams. I was wanting stuff like an SX thirty two as a kid, but they were too expensive. And now I've kind of finally got my dream CD thirty two set up. And I think you know, I speak for a lot of people when I say that we really appreciate all the work that you and the gang put in. So. Long may it continue, and uh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast this week. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.